Welcome to Someone Else's Movie, the original podcast where an actor, writer, director, or nebulous industry figure gives a little love to a movie they didn't make. I'm Norm Wilner, senior film writer for Now Magazine, and this is The Other Thing I Do. For this week's episode, I went to London to sit down with Saul Dibb, a writer and director whose films include Bullet Boy, The Duchess, and Sweet Francaise. His latest feature, Journey's End, an unconventional World War I drama starring Asa Butterfield, Sam Claflin, Paul Bettany, Stephen Graham, and Toby Jones as soldiers in the trenches of France in spring 1918, is in theaters right now, and it's very good. Saul picked A Prophet, Jacques Odiar's magnificently complex 2009 prison drama starring Tahar Rahim as a young man named Malik who's facing six years in a French prison for an unspecified crime. With no friends on the inside and precious few on the outside, Malik looks like he's being set up to be destroyed, except that he's smart and he's watchful, and when a Corsican mobster played by Niels Arstrup makes him an offer, he's ready to make the most of it. It's a tense, powerful film that refuses to just be one thing. And if you haven't seen it, well, go see it and then listen to the rest of the episode. It's very good. This is someone else's movie. You know, I just love it on so many different levels. I've always been a massive fan of Jacques Odiar's work. I think he's an incredible filmmaker. Um, and I'd love the beat that my heart skipped. And I'd, uh, and I'd love to read my lips even. And that was, you know, you could see his kind of, the way he was growing as a filmmaker through yeah. those films. And then I just thought um, a prophet was a was a kind of masterpiece, really. Yeah. Of a year that produced two, I thought European masterpieces. There was the White Ribbon, in its own way, which was just flawless. I felt, and then there was a prophet, which was completely different. Yeah. Um, and they both went up, I think, for the Best Picture Oscar. They did. Cancelled yeah. each other out, and and I can't remember which other. And something else won. Yeah. Um, it was. Uh, I, I pulled up my review just to double check to make sure because I remember not expecting to like it as much as I did, yeah. if, if that's not too judgy from a, from a critic's yeah, perspective. Yeah. Um, but it's, you know, everybody was saying, oh, the prison movie. And it's like, well, it's a prison movie the same way that Godfather is a mob movie. It's just, Exactly. He transcends a, the, yeah. I think that's what he, he does so brilliantly. And so I saw it, um, for me, for the first time, without any baggage. Mm-hmm. I saw it at the London Film Festival. So it had not been reviewed right. yet. And it just came and it was... And it was, I think, the surprise film, maybe, that they'd had there. And uh, I just thought it was amazing. Uh, and I loved I loved the fact that he he took a kind of genre, well, clearly a genre, mm-hmm. you know, it's kind of rags-to-riches crime story, a kind of Scarface, mm-hmm. um, and totally reinvented it. You know, very cinematic in a claustrophobic environment. But he did, for me, the one kind of brilliant thing was just to put in a... French Arab actor in the middle of it so yeah. and, he's, and he talked about it afterwards I read him you know what he'd said about it and it it said it was a way to create a new icon you know what you can do with genre films is you can put a hero in the middle of it um, who conforms in a way to some kind of archetypes but out of it you create a whole new icon yeah. which I think you know three billboards in a way has, has probably done um this year to create a kind of female character who's a bit like a kind of western character yeah. who won't give up and then you've got this you know this gang kingpin who starts as a blank page um, kid so yeah yeah. so I just I was kind of blown away with it yeah and the fact that he is uh, his ethnicity 
immediately sets him aside from any of the other gangs. He's not yes. part of anything. No, because he comes, you know, again, just really clever decisions there. He comes as he's a, I think he's an orphan, isn't he? Or his parents, you know, his parents are, are not around. Yeah, they're out of the picture. Anyway. He's been, um, you know, he's been children home, children's home. Stuff. So he doesn't have a past. He doesn't have a culture. Mm-hmm. And he grows and develops one. He doesn't have an identity, you know. He's not, you know, he's not, he doesn't belong to any kind of religion. He doesn't belong to any group. He's, and that's what's interesting about him. He's in between all of these different gangs. Yeah. Um, and, you know, and eventually he ends up with an with a strong identity and just makes a decision about who he who he goes with. But all of those things are to play for at the start of the film. Mm-hmm. Um, we don't even know really what he's done. You know, yeah, he just he's hit some policemen. He's got six years, um, and he's a he's a kind of boy thrown into a man's world. Mm-hmm. Um, and and Tahar Rahim is just he's so still. And yeah. watchful, that it took me. Uh, it really wasn't until the second viewing that I started to have an opinion on whether he was watchful or frightened. Yeah, you, know, you can't absolutely. read him at all. No, absolutely. And so that's why he fitted in. And I, and you know, so many of the scenes, he you know, kind of dominates the scenes, but he's observing them. Mm-hmm. You know, and he brilliantly learns to speak. You know, so, you know, he understands that the the Corsican dialects that they're speaking, and so he begins to understand what they're saying. And so he becomes the eyes and ears. So, so it has all of that, and then on top of that, has all of the formal inventions that I think he puts on. You know, um, and then on top of that, has this totally unexpected metaphysical layer as well, yeah. which means that it completely transcends any ordinary kind of in a way either either social realist it's very real feeling film or um, kind of gangsterish film he takes it onto a kind of poetic level yeah the longer the film goes the bigger it gets yes and not necessarily through narrative it just expands yeah exactly the themes get bigger and bigger and uh, and what's at stake gets bigger and bigger but also the the sense of that as a piece of cinema as its own thing um, just grows in pace and that and I thought, you know, the way they, the way he dealt, the director dealt with the, the metaphysical element of it was just embedded so heavily in the reality and in his um, guilt and conscience that it was just seamless, you know, and the visual effects were just brilliant, you know, the, yeah. the light that comes at the end of the thumb and, you know, all of, the, all of that stuff just... Um, obviously added in with, with um, Desplat's gore just everything was working together to create something I thought that was pretty spectacular yeah and it won't it won't be one thing and it for any given time it, it refuses to conform it sets itself up it establishes all the rules of the prison film and then it yeah. just starts to violate them and then it starts to exactly and then and then actually it becomes less about the kind of plot you know and it does just be you know it has the whole cancer thing and you know mm. and it just seems to like to me it just it it seems to um, really speak about that relationship between European cinema and North American cinema. Mm-hmm. So, you know, even Godard and the French New Wave were referring to oh, the kind yeah. of gangster films of the oh, it was, of yeah. the 30s and 40s. American, you're steeped in, in that, films. and then the Amer- you know, in the American New Wave in the 70s borrows from the French New Wave, yeah. you know, and starts changing completely the way it makes all its 
you know, particularly it's crime-based stuff, mm-hmm. um, you know, um, or, or just the European filmmaking sensibility that was in a lot of Francis Coppola's work or sure. in Parallax View or all of those things. And then it goes back over the, you know, over the pond, um, back to Jack Odua, who's clearly in love with that kind of side of American cinema. And it just seems like that's just such a great um, to and froing of, yeah. of, you know, it's where it really works, I think, all of those different influences and approaches. Yeah, I mean, it's in conversation with, what, 50 years of, of cinema history. Yeah, exactly. Uh, from, I guess, it would go from White Heat to Breathless to Bonnie and Clyde to the yes. argument in the 70s with the, the, the British New Wave of Get Carter and things like that. Yeah, British New Wave, absolutely, and all of that kind of neorealism and, um, you know, and how that gave an injection back into, in a way, kind of genre films or mm. gangster films. Yeah. And here we are with this ostensible prison picture, which you know it sets it sets its rules out. It tells you what it's going to be, and then it just refuses to be that thing. Yes. Um, and I mean, it doesn't even make it as a prison film for the entire length. It goes, it leaves, it goes outside. It goes and leaves because it also embraces what the truth of prison prison life. Just mm-hmm. day release. Yeah. You know, it's that's what you know. I don't know whether that's true in. in in Canada or, or the United States, but you know, probably furlough programs. You know, that's how it that's how it works. It worked that brilliantly into the into the narrative, but it keeps you stuck, claustrophobic, mm-hmm. the pressure cooker thing at the beginning until it bursts out, and he has, you know, I guess that 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 kind of metaphysical thing. You know, it, it isn't just um, with the with the guy he's murdered and how he comes back. It's with that crazy incident with a deer, mm-hmm. you know. It's with uh, it's with the t- that that incredible slow motion sequence when everyone's getting shot and the bullets all around him and he emerges unscathed, you know. Which relates then to this kind of sense of being a prophet. Yeah, um, I spent the entire film wondering what the title meant. Yeah, and, and I then, think still it's a bit of a mystery too, you know. Yeah. Um, what is he a prophet of exactly? Of, of exactly, and um, yeah, and. He he's still a kind of enigma, I think, mm-hmm. when he steps outside. Right, and that's it, isn't it? I mean, you wouldn't... If you were watching a modern religious parable, I've always kind of wondered about this, would we understand it if it was happening? In our contemporary yes. milieu, yeah, would, yeah. would we know? Would, would 21st century Western culture recognize a religious experience if it was happening? Yeah, absolutely. And and especially if it happens in that world, you know, mm. because we're also conditioned to write off uh, yeah. criminals or criminality or this, you know, to not allow a particularly like a kind of underclass of people any spirituality either. So, but obviously, you know, true to true to the kind of original stories, that's where it would be happening. Mm-hmm. Right? It'd be happening yeah. on the streets. It would be happening in in. Yeah. People who are living very, very difficult, complex lives. Yeah, he, Christ hung out with beggars and sex workers. And yeah, no, absolutely. People would rather not think about that, especially no. in America right now. But uh, no, exactly, and yeah. that's that's that you know that's the origins of it. So, so you're right. And where would it where would it come from? And also, you know, it's a you know it's a political film mm-hmm. as well. I think it doesn't wear the politics on its sleeve, but you know, prisons are. It's about opportunities, isn't it? Where would we all be? Were we, which I think film does brilliantly, you know, if we were to be in his shoes with his background, 
what would you know what would we do in, yeah. in that situation where would we go yeah would um, we well the first moral test of the film is can you kill someone to make your life a little easier yeah you know, are you willing to do that what to I guess to save your life I mean that's that's because kind of how they set it up isn't by the time it? You know, it we, all, to that we will kill you if you don't kill him mm-hmm. kind of thing um, yeah and that's just I mean that just grips you doesn't it and it's like, what 10 minutes into the film yeah. or something you yeah. hear about that um, and Neil's our strip is a you know just a brilliant malevolent yeah. figure in that in you know it's that forehead yeah it's, it's that just forehead. The, I mean, that's what formidable means I think. yeah it's just yeah it right, just okay. pushes into the frame and yeah you're afraid of him you, yeah you, you feel looking like kind of slightly like Klaus Kinski <laughs> you know yeah um, but it's the intensity and you really feel I mean, you know, and the and the brilliant details. You know, he heats up a spoon. And you don't know why he's heating up. Then he presses it on his eye. Yeah. All the kind of brilliantly and awfully ingenious things people do in prisons to turn normal things into weapons. You yeah. know, no, um, the world is lived in in a way that yeah, it's is, really lived in. The details are are specific in a way that you just. You, cr- you start to cringe from thinking about what something would mean. Absolutely. Where, where so you believe it completely. And I think a lot of times when you see films, I certainly watch a lot of films, I just think, I just don't believe it. Yeah. I don't feel like that they've done their work to understand what that world, how, how that world is. Mm-hmm. And I just felt that they'd, you know, that, that Odar had just got to grips with the, with the details so brilliantly and obviously brought in a lot of um, ex-prisoners to be in the background supporting artists so they knew, knew how to move it was you know it didn't, feel, it didn't feel any of it was faked yeah it's it's a weird line too when you're working in that sort of slightly stylized just removed from reality kind of world where you don't want to cue the audience too much that this is an unrealistic depiction no but you want to make it you want to set something apart from reality just enough to make it cinematic without yes. making it feel fake, right? Yes. That's because you can always, we can always tell. We can always tell and, and or to, to feel mundane, mm-hmm. you know, and everyday, which can be, you know, that's, you know, that's, it certainly can be a, t- a type of cinema that's very, very powerful. Sure, but, yeah. but you're right, he's going for a kind of heightened sense of reality in a very operatic kind of storyline. But I think he does it right from the start. Yeah. You know, even when you see the titles, the titles are kind of, mm-hmm. you know, they're, they're kind of darkness is encroaching around the titles. He's already, you already feel like I'm in the hands of somebody who's going to be doing something to yeah, the yeah. ordinary. And then it's all about point of view, which is, it's like a kind of, it's like that old irising technique in films, you know, but it's blurred around the edges. So you just... You, you, you very strongly get a sense of point of view in the film. You know this is some person's very subjective point of view. Mm-hmm. And, the, and the frame is only showing you a fragment of the whole image. And so he's, he's already doing something visually, yeah. I think, that's telling you it's, this, is, this is different. This is, he- this is heightened. This is very, very real. And like you say, it's all very, very lived in. But it's a kind of heightened sense of of that reality yeah and it makes us look more closely at everyone and consider things just trying to figure out 
what people want becomes an incredible challenge. Not yeah. what will you, what do they want you to do? That's pretty obvious. But the reasons behind the reasons. Yes. Um, we never fully understand him. He obviously he wants power. He, yeah. Gradually, it's revealed. You know, yeah, spoilers. Yeah. He will. He wants to run things, but I think I don't know that he wants that going in. I don't know no. that that was ever a goal. No, I don't think so. I think. Um, I think. Yeah, and then it's, it becomes an interesting question what that kind of represents. Yeah. You know, what's he saying? Is it just survival? With that. Because it? that's also very unusual as a, as a piece of writing. Mm-hmm. You know, um, what is the thing that makes him want that power? Yeah. You know, um, because there's lots of other things that go with it, well, like education and reading and learning, that don't necessarily mean that you're going to end up... Um, Doing that, but I guess what what it follows is is a kind of um, it's like a master servant relationship, isn't mm. it? Father son, master servant, you know. Yeah. So he's being mentored by uh, uh, Aristotle's character, yeah, yeah. Uh, all the way through, and obviously, you know, as it always happens, there'll be a point where he has to throw off his master and yeah. take over. So maybe it's adhering. It's adhering to that, but it feels so organic. You never, it, it does have all the genre elements, but you're never feeling like they're cranking through the gears. Yeah. Um, um, my second time through, I was trying to figure out if, if he was being led or if he was leading, if he was trying to create this relationship. If there's yeah. a clue in the film. Because a lot of it seems to be kind of luck as mm-hmm. well, but maybe yeah. that's partly also where the profit thing comes in there's a light kind of shining on him somehow yeah or the circumstances aligned for this reason yeah and I think also you know it's about um, for me you're watching it's about it's about people's options you know when you're in that environment what other options are you being given you know and there's a great phrase I think that somebody said that um, crime is a left handed form of capitalism (laughs) you know so he's really just following doing what any kind of good um, you know, go-getting capitalist would do, which is work up through the system that you find yourself in, right. with a p- will to power to get to the top. Sure, you know, and yes, use I your suppose. entrepreneurial skills to rip other people off, and you know, cut out the middleman, knock off other people, you know, and mm-hmm. do, do what's necessary. Because again, it's power, and you know, violence is a is a language, and it. And it works in that environment. Yeah. It creates power. And it creates, it also, um, rather, maybe it doesn't create, but it allows the interpretation of the metaphor of, you know, the, the dark-skinned men coming into France and taking all the good jobs. That yeah. Sort of thing. The, I, I loved that the film never explicitly makes that, uh, makes that felt. It's right. just there. It's just floating freely and... In France in two thousand and nine, everything yes. is just sort and of. And also, France, I think, is you know, is is you know, I'm not French, but mm. I can I, you kind of see what's going on in France. I don't think it, you know, it, it, it doesn't have a good relationship well, with its Muslim popu- yeah, population. You know, not it, ten, ten years ago, I think it was probably worse. It was probably worse. You know, the it feels like it's still negotiating. Well, yeah, I mean, I guess all the all the terrorist stuff homegrown terrorist stuff since has also mm. complicated that but you know the riots that were on the streets of Paris all the stuff that Lane came out of as mm. well you know before yeah, yeah. Um, and so it's very brave I think to also just to take an unknown and make that your your story yeah 
um, on a film that was, I imagine, probably the most expensive film that he'd made up until well, then. For him, know. certainly, yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just got all of that stuff going on, and it's brilliantly told as well. I thought it, it seems no surprise. It's interesting that his, his dad was a screenwriter, um, so he was obviously brought up in that kind of thing. But he, but the way he writes is not as a normal, you know, kind of Hollywood or Western kind of three act structure model. You know, yeah. it's much more complicated and much. Ma- ma- Many more things are withheld, information's withheld. Um, you know, as I think you, you talked about when you first arrived, you don't really know much about him. You know, it doesn't lay everything out for you about yeah. what you're going to expect. Yeah, I mean, the only thing, the only way that it's a conventional prison film in that way is that it, there is there has never been a single prison film where someone goes in to do their time quietly and succeeds. Right, yeah. I, I just, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I love that, that there's, someday someone will make one and we'll understand why they don't yeah. make them. But he's just immediately, he's going to keep his head down. He's, going to, he's not going to bother anyone. No one's going to bother him. Yeah. And of course, the illusion of control in a penitentiary, it's doubly so. You just, yeah, yeah. There's absolutely no way to keep himself isolated. Uh, yes. And, yes. And every single, it's like a pinball machine. Every single piece is in, is in rotation around him. Yes. And that first act of choosing an allegiance or, or what it, doing whatever it takes to be safe leads us all the way through I mean that's the, the that if anything is, is the you know the inciting incident that every screenwriter lives for yes but it seems so it's survival and, yes yeah, it's yes. the thing that of course you would do that of course you would I mean you're, you're so quickly we're on the side of this this criminal whoever yeah. he is whatever yeah. he's done yeah um, and I think not knowing anything just makes it perfect we can imprint ourselves on him or yeah, yeah. Uh, build empathy and maybe yeah like, yes absolutely and the, you know was the even the crime, you know, was it was it a resisting arrest? Exactly. Thing? Like, yeah. In a fight, you know, what was the thing? So he's he's left that interestingly open. I mean, funnily enough, I was just thinking going back to um, you know what it is he wants. I mean, to me, the closest it's it's less a prison film. It's more like a remake of Scarface. Mm-hmm. You know, so you he arrives, doesn't he? I don't think I haven't seen it for a while, but I don't think Al Pacino arrives thinking. Well, obviously, I'm talking about Scarface. Sure. Mark II yeah. uh, arrives. Um, well, he's one of the Mariolitos, so it's, yes. I think it's implied that he's one, he was already a criminal. Oh, uh, okay. One um, of the, the kind of guys like, all the ones are pushed out, pushed yeah. out. Yes, yes. It, he just sees, but I guess what he just sees is opportunity. Right. Doesn't he? Yes. You know, it's, well, the, it's partly the American dream is what that's, you know, yes. is, is working way through the ranks. But I think what's really, what I kind of find interesting about a prophet is at the end, it's not, it doesn't have the moral yeah. coda, which is always like the gangster dies, the gangster falls from grace, the gangster goes to prison, or or in uh, Goodfellas, the, the gangster turns against his own people. Here, it's like the end shot. It's so triumphant. Yeah. It's just about power. He's walking down the road with, you know, and a load of cars and SUVs start, start trailing him yeah. down the road, which is actually, you know, really provocative. Um, no, it's a great thing to say at the end, and just tells you, I think, whether you know what side the director's on. Yeah. You know, the champion of that underdog who's got himself into this situation. Yeah, and it's not a tragic victory the way, say, The Godfather is. Yeah, with Michael Corleone being anointed, 
yes. at the cost of everything. At the cost of his soul. Yeah. You know, because this guy's kept his soul. He's, he's actually yeah. got more of a soul, you know, as he's gone on. Yeah, we certainly, you know, we know him better. Yeah, and yeah. he makes, you know, great friends with the guy. He gets cancer, he dies, he's going to take on their family, you know. Mm-hmm. He's taken on, um, you know, he's found a, a faith or an identity of sorts, you know. Yeah. Um, and then leaves and you think, wow, what's he going to do now? Yeah, whatever's next is completely unknown. Again, I mean, you could pick up another film ten years later with him arriving somewhere new. Yes. And it would be, I think, I mean, I, I now I want to see that. It would be just as interesting to see where this character is now. Yes. Because ODR has this this clarity in his storytelling, even when he's turning it up with with visual well turning it sounds uh, derogatory but when but visual flourishes yeah when he's doing yeah. the things that make his films his films yeah uh, so distinctive he's still you know he never strays from his points he's, he's he tells a story in a straight line yeah he allows the room to contemplate uh, the meaning of things but there's also a clear explanation for everything that we see yes and why people do the things they do it's just about getting us to the places where we can understand how this is happening. Yeah. I suppose. I mean, I, I've always been fascinated that he would choose to remake Fingers so early in his career. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's such an odd choice. And Well, I, I know. And then, you know, and it's so brilliant. And then you watch Fingers. And I went to watch Fingers after seeing the people. Oh, okay. Skipped, yeah. And I was like, wow. Yeah, they're <laughs> you know, very different films. They're so different. One really works and one for me works not quite so well. Mm-hmm. Um well, I know. Toby's film didn't really work in the eighties either. I think right. Everybody was really impressed at the attempt. Yes, so it was a the idea of marrying scheme. these two things. But um, yeah, that was just no. It's a mess. A, yeah, I'll but the beat that my heart skipped was just brilliant. Yeah, it's you a know. surgical version of that film. It yeah. finds the through line and and. It removes all the excess that the stuff that Toback always does, where he just yes. falls in love with his own writing and can't cut. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Whereas actually, it's not the dialogue you remember mm-hmm. from it. It's the encounters, the intensity of Roman Dewey, um, you know, who was uh, I think was like a French did a lot of French comedies before it. Yeah, I still don't understand that. You I've know, only ever seen him in dramas, and I right, I. It was just brilliant, but the electricity, the intensity. Yeah, he's got this a restless soul. A profile for drama and, thr- and a jaw for thrillers. I just don't yeah. see him doing comedy. Yeah, and just so intense and magnetic, but really difficult to pull off. You know, mm. the gangster pianist. You know, it's yeah. like it's, you know, it's. Really, but he does it. But I think just with with such um, kind of straight line. But I think there was something else that I, in his methodology that I really liked, and it, you know would love to be able to incorporate in any films that I did is he does this thing called an A you probably know but he does a thing called an A roll and a B roll oh shooting so an multiple a, cameras no it's it's because uh, he shoots a single camera okay um, but he, he shoots I think this is what he calls it but essentially it's like A is the script right and then right. he finds time to shoot B oh. B are kind of improvised moments or scenes or stuff so shooting experiments around, around it intentions of the screen. and you can, I think you can see that when you see the films because you can see so much more of the world than is just in just in a script yeah. so in the start I think of um, Beat That My Heart Skips I think the opening scene and I might be wrong but I think it is one of the improvised scenes oh. which is just about somebody telling a story about his dad what his dad was like 
you know, cut to them in the underpass, music's on, they're going off to do some dastardly mm-hmm. kind of stuff. Um, but it's just it's a brilliant way to kind of encapsulate the whole story, really, about fathers. Yeah. And I thought it was just a way of differentiating it out of the gate from the, uh, from the Tobek film. Because right. it just opens so differently that you're instantly uh, set okay. back trying to figure out what's going on. Yeah, I think I think so. I, I really like the idea that you kind of um, start improvising around your script, yeah, and then bringing the two together is, you know, a really nice. Thing. I've tried, you know, I, first film I ever did was improvised, and then went into things that were more scripted. But I've always tried to keep that element of improvisation because it just gives you a layer of reality. Yeah. How are you, some, I mean, how are you with people just going off uh, off script within a scene? Is that, does it lend itself to that? No, I think it doesn't, I don't know. I think you really need to work out what it is that you're doing that for. Yeah. Um, you know, little bits and pieces, obviously, Or, but I'm, I much prefer to be collaborative with the actors and try and work out what might be wrong with the scene rather than, you know, kind of correct it mid-scene by going off and doing something else. Yeah, I mean, you can. there are times when um, you can tell in a film where someone has just fired off on their own. Yeah. And sometimes it works, occasionally. Occasionally. Um, you know, Christopher Walken or yes. you know, Nicolas yeah. Cage, Michael Shannon, there are people who can do it and invest a moment with their own particular eccentricity. Yeah. But you're also really, really aware that they're doing it. Exactly, and I think you know. I think you know there are brilliant sequences like Taxi Driver, the classic. Are you looking at me? Are you talking to me? You know, yeah. you know, that was you know a lot of kind of different improvised takes from what I understand. You know, put together, yeah, right? yeah. suddenly it's a whole new sequence. But it's orchestrated. Right? Yeah, it's but not it's, a, it's not a violation of the scene. When it no, happens. and it's totally you know it has to be actor in tandem with director yeah. for that stuff to to really work. I think. Yeah, and and certainly the, you know profit. There's just it's so controlled and so tense. Yeah. That I mean, I'd love to know which scenes are which because. Yeah. There's so much Me life too. in the film. But uh, yes, and when you see, I think sometimes also you see, he does. He goes into like a Nas track, I think. You know, it's just like a big hip hop track goes in the middle, and he does a, you know, a long kind of um, montage sequence. Oh yeah. You know, which involves some of the people. Just looking straight at camera, you know, it's like a—it's completely just out of nowhere. Yeah. It, in seemingly, you know, even just also the the, the intertitles he uses, which clearly is a big nod to Scorsese. Yeah, the chapter in endings. there, you know, um, but done in a way that feels um, different. I think he even puts up eyes and ears, doesn't he? On. I on screen, so, yeah. he says, you're going to be my eyes and ears. It flashes out eyes and ears. Yeah. You know, it just felt like that's, it was just so bold and confident. And I think when you watch a film, you want to feel that that wh- whoever's steering the ship knows exactly where they want to be taking you yeah. um, with it. And you feel that completely. Yeah, it's the thing that people talk about when they talk about Tarantino, the authorial stamp. Right. But... Is is ODR just does it in such a completely different way? Yeah, that there's no point in comparing the two. It's simply that they're both in command of the form. Yeah, to the point where they can do that. Yeah, and it's absolutely what they want to, you know, how they want to do it. And look, you know, obviously, lots of people, lots of directors who do that, and that's in a way 
part of being a director is yeah. <laughs> is being able to do that. Um, but it's playful, I guess, as well. Yeah, that's what you know. It feels like it's not just a kind of, you know, it can be kind of a look at me kind of thing. Mm-hmm. But I think he's much more interested in us looking at them. Yeah, it's a. I, it's. It always feels to me when it's done properly, it's just an acknowledgement of the possibilities of the form. Yes. You know, look at this is a movie. We can. We don't have to be. 100% we can do that. Realistic. We all know we're watching a movie, but yeah. it doesn't stop your suspension of disbelief. It doesn't yeah. stop you looking, caring following this person right no if anything it pulls you in closer pulls you um, yeah Wes Anderson somehow does that too that was somebody I was thinking I just saw right. Isle of Dogs a couple of weeks ago and oh uh, yeah I can't wait to see oh, that it's great it's just great and I was struck with his you know how the, how stop motion um, just it frees him in a way that right. that's starting to corrupt his live action stuff but not in a bad way but right. Grand Budapest Hotel could have only happened after he made Fantastic Mr. Fox right just Treating framing, films, yeah, yes. treating films as playsets and every yeah, element yeah, yeah. is des- designed and bespoke. It's like it brought him into a proper um, understanding of the thing he was already doing. Yes, and then you look at Isle of Dogs, and it's the same again. The strengths of Grand Budapest have now gone back into stop motion right. because he's aware that I mean everything in the film is constructed, but he's created this near future Japanese mega city with wow. garbage made out of cotton wool and things and it's it's exquisite but it's that instinctive understanding of what's possible yeah to tell his story yeah and that strangely enough brings me back to Odiard because he hasn't made two films that are the same and he's not repeating himself no. Dupin is is very different again yeah and somehow each one of them the only thing that's in common with the next or the last is that they're his films yes that they were made by the same you know, guiding intelligence, that there's a vision behind them. Yeah. Have you seen the most recent one? Uh, no, I haven't. I've only seen Deepak. Is there Right. One? Oh, yes. Well, he's just done the the Sisters Brothers. No, no. Which is the first American film. Yeah. Um, is it going Western. To, is it going to Cannes? I don't know. I think, I, th- I just heard that it must be finished soon. Okay. Well, Deepak's an interesting one. Because mm-hmm. you're right, again, it's... And formally, it's different. Yeah. I mean, you could maybe make a comparison. They're both about structured systems that are infiltrated by people. An outsider, yes. Yes. But that's really the extent of it. And you can say that about almost any film. Yes. uh, Because they're all about singular personalities becoming the focus. And also about, you know, at the time, complete unknowns. Mm -hmm. You know, even more with Deep End, you know. That's true. You know, they didn't even feel particularly like they're actors, you know. And and so unlike this... the two leads, you know, that you would ever find in, um, you know, well, in a film. A conventional. In a conventional movie. film, yeah. But with also that big, you know, sl- slightly strange um, kind of gangster narrative that goes underneath it too. Yeah. It just, I feel like he's open to the possibilities of telling stories. Um, starting, I guess they're also both marginalised characters. He starts yeah. with that. But his his sympathies are such that um, he'll he'll tell the stories of of people we probably wouldn't pay attention to in a glossier yeah. film. Yeah, yeah. They'd be the secondary character rather or than the, or people we might not obviously like. Sure. Yeah. You know, I mean, beat them my basket. He does some terrible. He does some yeah. not very nice things. You know. Um, Although we're much more used to sympathizing with white gangsters. Yeah, we are. Right. Yes. Yes. There's a yes. history there. Yeah, no, that's true. 
that's true and find them all then like kind of cheeky bad boy mm-hmm. kind of thing um, but I guess too that's early enough in his in his filmography that he wouldn't be you know he'll try something safer just so he can make the next film like that kind of thing yes yes you know, yeah, so I guess yes you leapfrog it so you do Rust and Bone which yeah. I thought was great as well Matthias Shanouts and um, uh, Cochier yeah, yeah. Br- uh, brilliant yeah, yeah, that one was. I think that's probably still his most divisive film. I saw it at yes. uh, at TIFF at a press screening. It was one of the um, the P and I industry screenings. Right. Four hundred people. Yeah, and I think precisely half the room rejected it, and it was really? a really fascinating experience. Yeah, yeah. Uh, because I'm just sitting there thinking, all right, let's you know keep going. What do you got? This is not. I mean, it's not a conventional love story, no. which is fascinating. Yeah, and I like these actors. And you could just feel other people just uh, just not get it. It wasn't, yeah. I mean, I, I think it's very underrated. Mm-hmm. I, I still really love it. Um, but it, yeah, it's not as it's not as satisfying yeah. of an experience in a way. And yeah. maybe that sometimes it's not. You know, people want, might want something more whole at yeah. the end. You don't really get a sense of whether they're together. I mean, it is kind of a love story, and they do fall in love. But they're also, it's also... Well, it's about recovery and escape yeah, and all of the other and things. and all of those things, yeah. yeah. It's funny, it's... Um, I guess it's probably the hardest one to quantify, just to say what kind of film it is. Yeah. It's about damaged people. Yes. But again, so is everything. Yes. Uh, and it doesn't have the high of the final shot of a prophet where you just... You no, you see them together. You want to, you, you know, you desperately want to see them together as a family, don't you? Yeah. You know, for the sake of this you know for the sake of the kid or all of those things that you've come to care about yeah um, they've earned it yeah, yeah but he doesn't quite place, yeah. he doesn't quite um, give it to you yeah. there I think also I mean what I really love is that he um, and the Prophet's a great example I think he makes contemporary films you know he makes contemporary films in France that travel internationally yeah and as a as a British director who, uh, who Started off, my first film was a contemporary film, you know, very contemporary film. And then, you know, having made period films, I'm always trying to kind of get back to uh, to making things that say something about contemporary Britain. And you're swimming against the international tide, who, right. who is interested in Britain for what we used to be and not for what we are. Yeah. Well, so it it's is. very difficult. So to, you know, yeah, to, ma- to make something has to be so good particularly French, to break out and, and become an international hit in the way that a prophet was. Yeah, but what you're saying about um, about British cinema is fascinating because we are at a place where we've had three Churchill films in the space of a year and yeah. a half, and, uh, and and Journey's End is about World War One. but yeah. there is, I think, a constant conversation about, as you say, what Britain used to be uh, as a spirit representing to the world, um, and, and just to see all the different treatments of the past now yeah. you know you've got Frears' film about Victoria and Abdul and, yeah, and yeah, yeah. sort of engagement in an adorable way with colonialism yeah um, it feels like we're that the, the English film industry is at a place now where it's cap- it's capable of confronting the past if it wants to yes yes and it does um, you know and it and because if you make period films doesn't make them innately conservative hmm. Um, although a lot of the most successful ones often are because sure. they well they don't challenge the audience no and they and they perpetuate a kind of um, 
you know, they can give us a reassuring myth about ourselves. Sure. Which, you know, we've seen probably quite a few of those recently. Yeah. Um, oh, sure. You know, or ones that actually, I think, really intelligently look at um, kind of complex social history, but they're still part of a, you know, global brand Britain, like The Crown, you know, yeah, yeah. which is really brilliantly written and deals with a lot of kind of dark stuff about what the establishment was up to and all of that, you know, those kinds of things. But it's still... You know, yeah, that's still the big so. Netflix series, isn't it? You yeah. know, it's not that from Britain. It's not. Um, it's not something else. So that's. Our, I always think that, that you know you, you can look to Europe, France mostly. I think feels like it's able was with Le Hain and it is with Odiar to kind of embrace more of what's going on. Yeah, and sort of look into its current contradictions. Yeah. Without the gloss, without the veneer of period or, or yeah. disguise. Yeah. Yeah. This is one of the things about the Canadian film industry that fascinates me. We just haven't had one long enough that we have a myth. Right. We don't have a okay. mythology. Right. So, you know, we made a Norman Bethune film in 1980. That right. was it. And all You've of been our around film, for a bit longer than that. Documentaries, sure. But in right. terms of features, there really, really haven't been that many. Um, right. The first major dramatic feature is probably going down the road, and that's 67. Um, we just, wow. our guys went south. Right, that's it just was, it was so much closer. You know, like there was yeah. an established film industry to do to to go contribute to. Yes, um, you did do though. Talking of the spiritual ones, you did do Jesus of Montreal. We did, which is so a great you did film. do the the kind of modern prophet. Yeah, um, I remember uh, from the late eighties, eighty eighty eight, I think. Yeah, eighty seven. Yeah, that's Denis yeah. Arcand though. He's yeah, he's a force unto himself. Yeah, and then of course you've got the brilliant um, Villeneuve. Um, who's working in the States now almost exclusively but then I think also did that thing that that Odiard does and I think Paul Greengrass probably did Mm -hmm. taking an understanding of the real world and then applying it in American films that's true you know yeah Villeneuve's first were the one that you know and Sandy's the one the first one I saw of his which is just bold and brilliant in in a not dissimilar way even yeah. I mean, structurally, incredibly bold, but the t- titles and the, you know, yeah. great storytelling, but very, very, very real and very believable. Yeah. Have you seen um, the the one just before that, Polytechnique? No. That's worth seeing, if you can find it. It's, right. uh, it's a 75-minute right. black and white scope uh, wow. adaptation or impression of, uh, of, a, of a very infamous uh, school shooting in 1989. In, in Montreal, right. Uh, told from multiple perspectives, he he does he does his thing to it, and it's absolutely gripping. Really, and yeah. I, I don't think it ever really got any legs in, internationally, but it's it's definitely worth seeing. Oh, I'd love to see that. Yeah, I'm sure I can find it for you. Yeah, but, but I did want to ask you, um, and we sort of touched on it already. Is there anything of uh, a prophet that's that's found its way into your own? Uh, creative DNA have you borrowed or stolen or riffed on anything from um, it I think well I think maybe in terms of you know the the, the truthfulness of the performances mm-hmm. um, you know pushing everything to feel very real very believable I think actually you know um, I'd, I'd all my first films were with single camera and then I'm you know, did bigger films and started using two cameras and got really frustrated because it felt like they're not, it's not a single voice. Right. And um, 
looked into a prophet and saw that they'd shot, you know, they'd shot it all single camera and I just thought, you know, that's absolutely for me the way to go, you know. Yeah. It's actually even quicker, I think, because you're not having to kind of balance two opposing things. You can be very singular in the way that you shoot something. Mm. Um, I think his blocking is great, you know, not to get too technical, but, you know, the way that he, you know, he has long takes and they're often handheld. Um, and they the moves feel very unmotivated, you know, that he's never moving the camera for its own sake. Um, and he just gets the actors to work around the camera so it feels very organic, which feels like it's like a, you know, it feels like he's been watching a lot of Spielberg films. He's like the master of blocking, you know, how to right. do that kind of thing. And he's done it in his own way, just to keep it all feeling very real and mm. natural. And, and that's certainly something that I've kind of tried to work on, certainly with Journey's End. You know, how do you, how do you keep things going? You know, how, what do you need to keep things and takes running longer? And how do you work on the blocking so you're not necessarily worried about getting a reaction shot you make people wait because that person's going to walk past the camera and go over there and then and then you can see what they're thinking you know so you don't have to have a cut in there um so i think he does that but i think it's mostly it's the it's the emboldening really it's being really particular very bold very good use use of music um which i certainly think we we try to do with journey's end like really take N- n- to anti-score it yeah. you know with long held atmospheric uh, score that's not trying to drive the plot it's trying to give you a psychological um, insight yeah that's a thing that I've noticed and, and obviously with, with you know the Zimmer score for Dunkirk everybody was talking about yeah. the, the use of, of not music of yeah. whatever the tone is the yeah, yeah. And, but it does feel like in the last few years, cinema, uh, uh, cinema about, um, what am I trying to say? Uh, cinema about conflict, about war. There's the conventional war score has sort of fallen away. Yeah, uh, I, I think I think there's been some, you know, there've been some fascinating and brilliant new scores. And Desplat, his best work for me is always Jack Odeon. Uh, you know, the beat that my heart skipped. You know, you buy the soundtrack. It's just a thirty piece. 30 minute piece of music with a long held high note for a lot of it yeah. and it's just it's brilliant you know and beautiful and resolves itself obviously immediately but you know if you look at the stuff that Villeneuve's had for Arrival mm-hmm. um, was you know it's a completely different type of score yeah. and so when we did um, Journey's End I, I came across this Icelandic composer called Hilda Gudnattadir very bad pronunciation um <laughs> And I licensed, rather than kind of get a score composed, I licensed all her material and just used it, um, letting it breathe as a bed underneath a lot of the um, images. And it was a kind of brilliant and liberating thing. I I since found out that she'd actually, she had worked very closely with Johan Johansson, who did all the... Well, he scored arrival. Yeah. Arrival score, yeah. So yeah. it's like it's, it's part of that part of that school. Yeah, oh, it's, and it's great that you know the influences aren't just so conformist anymore. That you can really try anything. Yeah, you know, we've reached a point I think where audiences either have become so narrow 
uh, for a given film or so sophisticated that either way you can play to them and, and still tell your story. Yeah, and it's probably, you know, it's a technology thing as well, isn't it? In the way that photography had to change, when painting had to change when photography came along. Right, and now right. film is changing, I think, or some kinds of films are forced to change because television's come along and yeah. it lives in, in a space um, where some film used to do and film... You know, the question is, does film have to do something different? What does it? What can it do that's not that television can't do, frankly, and better in more depth, and more character over time, with the same kind of production and actors and scripts, yeah. quality. Um, and I think sometimes it's to create that whole experience, immersion, the immersion. Yeah, I think so. You know, I mean, a television. As soon as it went to sixteen by nine, it was yeah. immediately cinematic. Yes, people said, exactly. "Oh, it's like it's like you're watching movies." Well, kind of, kind of, but yeah. it's got act breaks and it's got yeah, it's got limitations on running time. And then the VODs got rid of act breaks. Yeah, you true. know, so you've got a you've got a straight hour um, of brilliant writing, brilliant acting. Yeah, so it so, can compete, I think, but uh, the you know it's the novel versus the short story. Yes, I think uh, or the series or the novella. Yes, yeah. yeah. And film still, uh, the inherent limitations of television, the fact that you're going to be watching more of this. Yes. You know, so many shows get second series that don't need them. Yes. The idea of... Ke- Finality. And, yeah. yeah. A film is over. It's a, it's a block of your time. It's the experience of sitting in the dark. Yeah, and yeah, being, yeah. You know, and you hypnotized. don't get that, I think, slightly uneasy feeling at the end of series now that you're going to be sold another one. Yeah. You know... Which in the really good ones you don't feel, you know. Yeah. True Detective, you didn't feel that. You certainly felt like it's that's it. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. Noir, you didn't feel that. But you know, a lot of the other ones, you feel like okay, I'm being I'm being kind of held out for this next thing. Yeah. But I think you know, just answered a bit more of that question of what sure, yeah. of what um, what I took away from it. I think it's point of view as well. Mm-hmm. It's it's you know what a prophet does is it puts you in that puts you in that prison. You understand prison life by the end of it yeah. you know or by 10 minutes in frankly you know <laughs> and you, you understand what it's like to be there in the claustrophobia and then what it's like to break free because he kind of holds that back from you he's not doing establishing shots of the prison you never see the prison yeah, that's right. you know um, you never really see much of the of the infrastructure of the prison itself really you see what he sees and um, yeah, the that, cells, I take the that. Away. I definitely take that away. I certainly think that's something that I try and do, and I've definitely done. Tried to do since, and certainly tried to do. in Journey Zen was really limit the point of view. You only ever see what the, you're in the trenches. You only ever see what the soldiers see. Yeah, you don't look out the top. Um, and you only go. You only see that when they go um, on a raid. So it's just to keep that kind of intensity of the the experience. Yeah, and it's. It's so much better for empathy. I mean, it's so much better to put us in their mindset. The characters yeah. become our... Their problems become our problems. Yeah. Like, we we only know what they know. I, I'm just... I'm thinking of um, a film I saw recently with, that just... it it's, uh, it's supposed to be milking suspense out of whether characters see something or not. Right. And the structure of it just tells us... Comes right out and tells us far too soon. Right. And... Yeah. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's self-defeating in a way, or I mean, maybe that's the point of it. No, it is. I think, and I think um, you know, some people are, are just you know are brilliant at that. I think um, um, Hanukkah 
It's yeah. great. With, you know, if you withhold information, if you, you know, it's, a way, it's about the giving out or withholding of information. If you give out information, a big piece of information at the start, that can be great. It's like a bomb under the bed, bed and everyone's just waiting for that to happen. Or, or just withholding and withholding stuff. So you get tension. Mm-hmm. Um, well, cachet, mystery. right? I mean, it's yeah. a film without release. Yeah, absolutely. You spend so every Every just... shot, just as he walks down a corridor, the creep of the tracking shot, then it's just full of tension. You know, you don't know anything. The yeah. mystery, and he holds it back and holds it back. Um, yeah, we're just as in, we're in the dark as much. Yeah, as he's brilliant. I mean, God, he's a master. I mean, I could have picked any one of his, to be honest. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, well, this was a good one too. Oh, it's great. You know, it's great. I mean, it, this is the one that I guess spoke to me, maybe, you know, more. The one that I would, you know, I guess you'd say like, you know, would there be a film that you wish you could possibly have made? And you know, a profit would be that one. Yeah. You know, I would be happy to have made a profit. Um, and retire (laughs) it's a good goal yeah my thanks to Saul Dibb whose fine new drama Journey's End is in theatres now in Montreal and Toronto and expands across Canada this Friday April 6th thanks also to Ali Lemaire she knows what she did and to Paul Atherley for once again letting me turn his flat into a podcast studio Saul's not on Twitter but you can keep an eye on his movie at Journey's End 2017 all one word no apostrophe and you can find A Profit on Blu-ray and DVD from Sony Pictures Home Entertainment. It's also available on iTunes and Google Play. As always, you can find me on Twitter at Norm Wilner and elsewhere on the internet at nowtoronto.com. You can also find this podcast on Twitter at Semcast, S-E-M-Cast, and on the web at someoneelsesmovie.com. If you feel like leaving a review on iTunes or Apple Podcasts, that would be greatly appreciated. Every little bit helps, it truly does. And uh, thank you for your support, and thanks for listening.